Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you for listening this week. This is Brain Drain, and I am Connor McCann. And I want to especially thank you this week for listening because this is the first episode in our Noteworthy series. So this is a new series that we're doing over here at Brain Drain. And perhaps this mindset exists just here in America. Perhaps it just exists everywhere among certain types of people. But there is the mindset that sometimes sports are just sports, films are just films, music is just music. But at certain times and certain places, these fields are intersected with power, politics, and crime. Noteworthy examines these intersections and tells these stories. And with that said, let's begin our first episode. For many, both who have studied history professionally and on a more amateur level, the Balkans are the definition of a troublesome backwater, seemingly a place that causes way more trouble than it's ever worth. It's an area defined by small, seemingly always warring, hateful states where vengeance is the form of diplomacy, and any state who enters its orbit just gets sucked into a quagmire. I'll say first and foremost, this is an incredibly self-serving view of history, particularly maybe from politicians, maybe from people, academics, even common citizens, whose countries have gotten quote-unquote sucked into the Balkans at some point in history. I mean, sure, I guess you can look at that. It completely ignores everything about why the great powers have been in this part of the world and what they've done and how they've influenced this place, but be that as it may, the Balkans is where our story starts this week. Like Ukraine last week, the Balkans has been home to a plethora of different groups throughout history and has a very long and extensive history of its own. Most of that history, though, is not pertinent to our story. The period most pertinent to our story starts in the 1800s in what is now Serbia. So when we think about places like Serbia, places like Croatia at that time, which was under Habsburg control, Different places in the world that are modern nation-states currently, but happen to be controlled by the Ottoman Empire or a different outside entity, a lot of times during this period and the periods before it, like a big city like Belgrade would be populated by some Serbian nobility, but predominantly the people that are going to be there are Turks, as the Ottoman Empire is a Turkish empire. Most of the people that are going to be in the higher upper echelons of things are going to be Turks as well. There's also going to be affiliated and allied groups like Albanians or Bosniaks or people from the Balkans who at some point converted to Islam and joined the Ottoman power structure. They would be centered in the cities, but in the countryside, that would be your constituent population of modern nation states. So if that was confusing, my bad, but I tried to say it uh, as non-confusing as possible, but essentially you would have your ruling outsiders in the big cities. The countryside would be the majority of the people in that entity, so the countryside here would be Serbs. The area had been under Ottoman occupation for hundreds of years by this point. So they'd been around. They were enmeshed with local society. The top of pretty much any pyramid anywhere was either a leader appointed by the Ottomans or a local person who was loyal to the Ottomans. That's who was running the show. The Ottomans were always on top at this point. However, the Serbs, Serbian people, were able to hang on to their culture, though. A lot of times in history, when a big empire comes through, if you look at Celts in continental Europe, if you look at the different Turkic ethnic groups that we talked about last week were in Europe and Asia, kind of like Western Asia, close to Europe, Eurasia. When the Mongols came, all of those groups pretty much assimilated into the Turkic core and became Tatars, essentially. The Serbs didn't do that here. 
some could make the claim that the the Bosniaks did that they converted to Islam, they lost their culture. Who's to say? I'm not from the area. Once again, this is <laughs> this is brain drain with Connor McCann. This is not brain drain with uh, Jellico or something like that. I can't claim who's what and who's the real what, and I'm not going to attempt to. I can tell you how the Serbs were able to hold on to their culture, though. So society was very communal. Living in the countryside, people were bonded together with jobs, uh, agriculture, particularly pig farming, like the nobles in Serbia made a lot of money off pig farming. The pigs obviously wouldn't go to Constantinople, but they would go in the opposite direction. And there were Serbs living in the Hasburg territory. So they, they had cousins across the border and they could do these deals. So a lot of noble people ended up becoming very wealthy through this process. But that's pretty much how society was. People lived in these big communal settlements. Families were together, extended families, rings of family, cousins. Everybody lived together in these villages. That's where all the stories, that's where all the history, all the epic poems, all the epic tales, everything came from there and also came from the church. In the Balkans, what would end up becoming the fight for independence from the Ottoman Empire started in Serbia with the rebellion, but it wasn't actually a rebellion for independence. But before we talk about Serbia's independence from the Ottoman Empire and the region's independence from the Ottoman Empire, it's important to discuss the decline that was going on in the Ottoman Empire during this time. So things like power decline, empire decline, the death of this, or when you hear things like that, generally what it means, because those are just catch-all terms, people that are lazy, let's call it what it is, that don't want to write anything more in-depth about something will use something like that so it's instantly spotted, recognized, you have some idea of what's going on, and you can move on from that and keep learning or keep doing whatever. Ultimately, when an empire or a country is in decline, it means that it's unable to conquer new territory, it's less able to control the territory it currently has, and is less fiscally stable. All this can happen either during a war or right after a war, particularly a long, really difficult war that consumed a lot of resources, that cost a lot of lives, this can start. It can also start with a period of extreme weather, as we've seen infectious outbreak, civil discord, tons of things can happen that can prompt decline, but the same way that decline can be prompted, it can also be reversed. We can say that the Ottoman Empire checks a lot of boxes at this time for empire decline, as well as additional boxes. Most important to our story, the empire had lost control over the die, or officials that administered the Serbian and Bosnian lands. Some of the nobles, in league with the peasants, and actually in league with the Ottoman Sultan, in fighting the very avaricious, greedy, rapacious, all of those words and all of those boxes check for the die in Belgrade and in Serbia during this period. And the nobles, the peasants, and the king of the empire, especially nobles and peasants from a place like Serbia, so far removed from the centrality of the empire, worked together and overthrew these die. However, once the die were overthrown, some of the nobles, particularly a man nicknamed Kara Georgi, which means like Black George, who was a nobleman, he was also a very wealthy pig farmer. They understood their position, they understood how weak the Ottoman Empire was at that time, and they understood their own position of strength. They were now independent from the die, but they understood that they could just become independent, period. Also during this time, the ideals of Romantic nationalism, which we briefly mentioned in the previous episode, stuck in the middle, they began to take hold in the Balkans. 
as the timeline of the previous episode predated the creation of romantic nationalism as we know it, we didn't get into it too much. What I can say about it now is that romantic nationalism is normal, or normal in places where there's a strong enough and central and national identity. And that identity can't just exist among some people who are very patriotic. It has to be accepted throughout society. And you might be asking, Connor, how are people going to live in the same country and not agree on who they are? How about this for an example? The history of Lebanon is interesting as well. We might touch on it at some point. And the idea of being Lebanese only used to exist amongst Christians or particular types of Christians and people that viewed themselves as Lebanese and not Arab originally. This is back in the 1800s, mid-1860s, I believe, that this idea, the idea had taken hold prior to that, but people, particularly Maronite Christians in Lebanon, were able to convince colonial authorities in France to support their play for independence. This part of what used to be Syria was broken off. It was given a backstory, basically a backstory that tied them to the Phoenicians and tied their existence back thousands of years. Some of them claimed to be the, the descendants of the followers that went up to Mount Lebanon fleeing the Romans. There's all these different backstories. But that idea of who was Lebanese only really existed amongst those people. Other people considered themselves Syrian which didn't necessarily mean that they're from Syria. That does mean that the entity that is viewed as Syria, which is essentially the Fertile Crescent, they view themselves as a citizen of that. So that idea existed in Lebanon. There was also the idea of Arabism. I'm an Arab. And being an Arab doesn't have any boundaries. I'm the same Arab that I am in Egypt as I am in Algeria. I'm an Arab. That idea existed as well. It wasn't until probably the end of the Lebanese Civil War that everybody in Lebanon finally agreed were Lebanese. And often it works out that way. Often it is the case where a group or a people views their history through the lens of romantic nationalism, at least they do now, and they find an origin story or they find a migration or they find a struggle that defines them. They all have a common language. They generally speaking have a common religion. But as we've seen with places like the Soviet Union, something else can stand in for a religious ideology as well. And also, there can be some linkage to a far-gone power that you are the descendants from, or you are the this, or you're the that. If we were to look at the history of America through this lens, we can see our origin story as the pilgrims. We can see the struggle against the British as our struggle that defines us. Although we could equally say the same about our wars against the Native American peoples that inhabited this country, but we don't look at it that way. English is our language. Christianity used to be our common religion. Things are a little bit more secular depending on where you are now. But even though people here have very different, even a lot of times dueling political views, we all view ourselves as Americans for the most part. And we look at our history. A lot of us even take it back further. We don't say our history just stops with the pilgrims. A lot of us look back to the Enlightenment. We look back to the Roman Empire. We look back to the Greeks. And we say, oh, well, we're following in this vein of democracy or enlightenment or whatever, dating back to these people, they're our ancestors. That's what you do in romantic nationalism. It's pretty common across the world. I'd be interested to hear if a people or a place doesn't do that, especially now, but that's what it is. So after this introduction, the Balkan Peninsula suddenly finds itself with a very, very, very diverse range of people. This includes 
the Slavic Serbs, Croats, Bosniaks, Macedonians, and Slovenes. Then there's the Indo-European Albanians. There's the Romani. There's Romanians who are also Indo-European but not Slavic. And there's also the Greeks. There's a little bit of everybody in the Balkan Peninsula. And once these dueling ideologies and then dueling sets of needs, especially you can say historical Serbia prior to the kingdom of Yugoslavia, they needed a port. They needed access to water. They didn't have that. So they created created the assumption that uh, Bosniaks were just Serbs. So come be Serbs and we'll be Serbs together and it's all to the good. At the same time, it wasn't always like that. But we'll get into that in a second. Yes, if we are going to discuss the tension in the Balkans between the different groups, most important to our story is the tension between Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks. And while there was tension, the tension became infinitely worse following World War II. So after the Serbian rebellion of the early 1800s, there was also a Croatian rebellion. There were different rebellions against the Ottoman Empire at this time. Following all those, Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks all lived together under the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. The rise of fascism in the 20s and 30s, personified by eternal assholes Mussolini and Hitler, spread to many countries around the world and inspired many politicians. Two of the main hallmarks of fascism are the stated desire to reclaim a past glorious time in one's history and the denigration of those in your country or in other countries who you feel are inferior to you or a threat to your nation. Fascism would find its way into Croatia, and in either 1929 or 1930, the Ustasha party was founded. Following the Axis invasion of the Balkans, the Ustasha would be put in charge of an independent Croatian state, and also carry out a genocide against Serbs, Jews, and Romani. There were many different groups that fought against both the Ustasha and the Nazis, but Serbs happened to fall into two different groups, those that joined royalist militias and those that joined communist militias. Following the defeat of both the Ustasha and the Nazis, power was consolidated by a man named Joseph Broz Tito, who was a communist militia leader and politician who was able to keep the tension between Serbs and Croats on a low boil for many decades afterwards. Tito accomplished this mostly through using an incredibly heavy hand. Any kind of subversive activity, anything that he felt like was a plot to his life, anything that felt like people were trying to take any kind of power from him, was wiped out instantly. This included people that were anti-communist, people that were regionalists who were looking for more autonomy or possibly even independence for their region. Tito wasn't having any of it. It's believed that close to, if not a million people, died by Tito's hand. Tito killed these people, plain and simple. He killed these people to keep power. But as is the case, many times a dictator dies, a huge vacuum forms in their wake. During his reign, there are only a couple of protests that he had to contend with. In 1968, there were protests all over the world, but particularly in Europe and in America, there were a lot of student protests, anti-war protests. There were protests in wake of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. There were a lot of protests at this time. Protests happened in Yugoslavia as well. And then also later on, a couple years later, 1970 and 1971, There were some calls for autonomy from Croatians, from Croatian nationalists. But Tito wasn't just the type of guy who just killed people. He could have continued to go on in that fashion, but he would use a combination of repression and appeasement as well. He would lock up protest leaders, but then he would also grant some of the concessions that they asked for. This unpredictable approach of not knowing if you're going to be granted clemency or if he's going to kill you 
it drove a lot of these student movements and autonomy movements underground. But the tensions wouldn't stay dormant for long. As noted, Joseph Bros Tito died in 1980. He was the man holding everything together. But prior to his death in 1974, he passed a law that allowed the republics of Yugoslavia, such as Croatia and Macedonia, Serbia, that allowed them to leave. They could leave the Union of Yugoslavia if they chose. The law also granted autonomous provinces. So this is places like Kosovo, Vojvodina. These are very ethnically mixed, sometimes tense, very interesting places. These places were granted the same voting rights as republics. So Kosovo now have the same level of vote as Serbia does. However, they weren't allowed to leave, unlike their counterparts, the republics. Ultimately, this weakened the central state, which is bizarre that a dictator, a guy whose whole foundation is based on centralized power, would do this. But because of his centralized power, because of his iron hand, and because of his ruthlessness, you couldn't really tell the harm that had been done to the state by passing this law at that time. Croatian politicians and nationalists, they approved of these changes, but Serbian politicians and nationalists didn't. They felt like the new laws weakened their republic at the expense of minorities. Also, prior to the death of Tito, the economy was flourishing. Also, generally flying in the face of communism or communism as it's been traditionally practiced by the dictators who have become communist dictators. The economy in Yugoslavia was based on manufacturing and it was it was based on these worker-owned factory collectives. That's something that's more akin to anarchism, which is very decentralized, where each one of these places is owned by the workers. The workers are the bosses of these places. They work together. They make decisions. They decide who gets paid what. They decide when they work. They decide when they don't. That's anarchism versus communism. The two get conflated a lot. Communism is, you do what I say because I belong to the <laughs> I belong to the group of proletariat that's declared itself elite, and I run the country because I belong to this proletariat elite group, this vanguard of the proletariat. You don't. You're essentially like a workhorse. Go work, and if you don't go to work, I'll send you to prison where all kinds of stuff can happen to you. That's communism. And despite the country being formally communist, this is what the economy was based on. However, there's going to be some listeners that remember the price shocks of the 70s, particularly the oil shocks where things were just going out of control. That really hurt the economy of Yugoslavia at this time. So the oil shocks, the price shocks, they were compounded by really stupid economic decisions made by state planners. And, um, you know, the recession that was going on in America at this time, in the late 70s, following Gerald Ford taking over from Nixon and then Jimmy Carter taking over from him afterwards, the economy was in the toilet. This kind of screwed up the economy the world over. So before I moved to Asheville and before I met my girlfriend down here, I would still come down here from time to time. Generally speaking, when I would come down here, I'd be going to a mosque or I'd be going to a bookstore or something like that. So on one of my trips down here, I bought the book The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Eric Hoffer was actually a longshoreman back in San Francisco where I'm from, but he was also a political theorist as well. He said in this book, the people that get the most angry, the most upset, and are the most prone towards either hatred or revolution or some kind of organized violence involving politics are people that had it good and just lost it. So it's not people that have been poor for generations like on my dad's side, broke as hell, dad was broke as hell, his parents broke as hell, broke as hell, broke as hell, broke as hell. 
maybe we had something before the plantation of Ireland, before, you know, the McCann family lands got taken away and we still were imported down. Who knows? But as far as I know, that's all generational brokenness. Thankfully, I've kind of broken that cycle. I'm not having any kids, so I'm not going to have any little broke-ass little kids running around. But when you're broke like that and it's all you've ever been, everybody knows you're broke. You don't really get mad at being broke because you don't even really understand that you're broke. You never leave where you're at. You might live in the projects. You might live in the hood where my dad's from in West Belfast. It's these little tiny houses that are all crammed next to each other. Or you live in like Divis Tower. It's, it's like that. But everybody's in the same boat as you. Who can, who can really clown you for being broke or having the broke shoes or having the broke pants or the whatever because they got the same thing you do. However, if you have something, you have something, you were working hard, you did everything you could, you went to college, you're not out here breaking the law, you're paying your bills, you got a good credit score, and then it doesn't matter. Your whole life just gets taken away from you. Look at people in the last year. People in the last year have lost everything, have also lost their fucking minds in the process. That's what happens when people are used to a standard of living that, especially if it feels like it's not fair that it was taken away from them, all those good feelings are just replaced with malice, hatred. They want to blame somebody for it. This is where nationalism rears its ugly face. The first hint of what was to come popped up in 1981 in the autonomous province of Kosovo. This is an area that's very central to Serbian history, but is populated mostly by Albanians. I believe Albanians prior to this, so even during this time, were still the majority in Kosovo, and have been for the last few hundred years. The people that came out to protest, they wanted Kosovo to be given the status of a republic, which the Serbian authorities were not having whatsoever. The protests were suppressed, and the authorities of Kosovo shrank its autonomy a little bit. So internally, they said, nah. You guys have too much freedom, you're going to have less now. So as I said a little while ago, those changes in 1974, those changes to the law, they weren't as discernible when Tito was still around. However, in wake of his death, these things start to be more apparent. Kind of akin to now, it was hard to pass anything. Trying to get any kind of legislation through to get the people that perhaps you, you might look at as your enemies or at the very least rivals to agree with you on something was almost impossible then as it is now. Politicians in Serbia particularly, which was the largest and most populous of the different republics that made up Yugoslavia, they felt like their hands were tied when it came to negotiating legislation, passing anything, dealing with any of the autonomous provinces, because you have to understand, two of those autonomous provinces that now have voting uh, rights are both in Serbian territory. And on top of all that, as stated, they had to negotiate with the Bosniaks, they had to negotiate with the Croats, they had to negotiate with everybody else too. As it was really hard to pass anything, and even harder as time went on to even have dialogue, a lot of grievances went unaddressed. And it created just a lot of frustration with the system. Then, in the 80s, a politician came along that wanted to turn back the clock to before 1974. His rivals, particularly his Croatian and Slovenian rivals, thought he wanted to turn back the clock even further and reintroduce a period of Serbian hegemony and territorial control in what would become a greater Serbia. This politician's name was Slobodan Milosevic, and his story is central to the story of Turbofolk. Like many a politician, particularly many a populist politician, he capitalized on this pent-up aggression and this anger and this frustration that people were feeling, and he used it to further goals 
political goals and personal goals. As we've discussed, a lot of people in Serbia felt hamstrung by that system that was created post-1974. They felt like their grievances weren't addressed, they weren't taken seriously, they weren't given their just due as the most numerous and largest people in Yugoslavia. And they felt like something like this, something like a strong leader, akin to the Cossacks in the last episode. They felt like someone who was really, really strong could get through these obstacles and through just pure force of will. And this cult of energy and this cult of personal power is another hallmark of fascism for anybody keeping track. But this is what a lot of people at that time wanted because the system was stagnating and they felt left behind. You know, simply put, they wanted somebody that was going to put them first. Someone that recognized, that understood their history. Someone that was looking to right these wrongs, these historical wrongs, Kosovo and these other things that had happened and take these lands back that had been taken away from Serbia, create that greater Serbia. That's what people were calling for. It wouldn't take long for a lot of unrest and suspicion to follow Milosevic's rise, but his rise coincided with the creation of the subject of our episode, Turbofolk. In turn, the origin of Turbofolk begins with the expansion of another genre, namely hip-hop. In the late 80s, despite the fact, and I remember this growing up during this time in the late 80s and early 90s, seeing how people talked about hip-hop, hearing what they said, seeing the protests, people driving over, all the CDs, Calvin Butts, I believe, all those people, the reverends, and all these, all these people coming out talking about how awful hip-hop was, despite all that, there were a lot of masterpieces put out. This is the golden era of hip-hop, from the late 80s to the early to mid-90s, depending on who you ask. A lot of great, all-time great albums came out during this time. So this includes Rakim, coming out with Paid in Full. KRS-One had a few albums that came out during that time that are classics. Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Rap, N.W.A. Just hip-hop, it became more and more popular, despite the fact that people had all these things to say about it, and it became more and more popular outside of New York where it was born. Despite the fact that it was getting more and more popular outside of New York, I'm not sure how many MCs were thinking about Montenegro at that time. And to be honest with you, I don't know how many MCs that either don't live in Montenegro or close to it or around there or are from there, I don't know how many of them are thinking about it either. But ultimately, that is the beauty of hip-hop. That's the beauty of art, period. Once it's created... Once it's released out into the world, it can inspire people anywhere. You don't just have to be from one place to listen to some hip-hop and feel inspired, feel a little cooler, feel a little tougher, feel like the man, feel like the woman, whatever. Whatever you listen to it for. If you listen for nostalgia, if you want to hear the stuff you grew up on. It can inspire you, and it can inspire the next person, and it can inspire people that the artist never intended to inspire. In places they never intended to inspire. That's the beauty of hip-hop. So even though Big Daddy Kane, Chuck D, Easy e none of these people were thinking about Montenegro at the time, none of these guys, none of these MCs, none of these legends were watching this country at the time, they weren't paying any attention to it, somebody in Montenegro was paying attention to them. And this somebody ultimately came to MC himself under the name Rambo Amadeus. So I'm sure many people are aware that Donald Glover, under his rap alias Childish Gambino, he came up with that name. Well, one, he didn't come up with it at all. He went to a name generator, which used to be around back in the day. These kind of little goofy things would be like, what's your blah, blah, blah name? What's your samurai name? What's your porno name? What's your violent alcoholic name? 
whatever. The last one might substitute for being Irish. I don't know. I didn't do that one. I only did the first couple. But anyway, he went to a Wu-Tang Clan name generator, and that's what they gave him. And to be honest, Rambo Amadeus sounds like the same shit. Like, that's how it sounds like he came up with something like that. But alas, at that time, Montenegro didn't have the internet. So he came up with this on his own. His background, being the son of a famous poet and being a champion sailor, I can say that probably most people putting out hip-hop at that time, most people listening to hip-hop at that time, did not share that backstory. There's a good chance he didn't even know what they were saying on the records, but it didn't matter. He liked what he heard, he found his inspiration, and he started recording after. I'll also add that you don't necessarily need to know what a song's about. There are songs I've been listening to now that are in Arabic, Turkmen, Hindi, Punjabi, Portuguese, you name it. I listen to a lot of different stuff, stuff from Nigeria, stuff from Ghana, stuff from the Ivory Coast, wherever. I, I like a lot of different types of music. A lot of those songs that I just told you about, I don't know what they're about. I know the lyrics. Like, I could sing, like, the lyrics to, for example, Bolo Tarara, Dollar Mendy. I know 100%. I don't know what any of them mean, aside from a couple here and there, but it doesn't matter. I really like the song. To be honest, I mean, the song can be about how much of a dumbass I am. Like, if I, I put it on one day, someone was like, hey, Connor, you gotta check this out. I put it on. And in their language, they're like, this motherfucker, Connor, is a dumbass. I'd be like, damn, this shit is hard. Like, I don't care. Like, I might even know that the song's about me and still be like, damn, this shit is hard. If it sounds good, I'll give it a listen. Like, I, I don't discriminate. Anyway, you can find his first song, his breakout song. You can find both a video of the song itself and you can find a performance. The song is called Balkan Boy. To me, during this time in his career, he sounds like he's rapping like the Beastie Boys. Particularly, his flow sounds like the flow you hear on that song, Paul Revere. I heard him later, so my first introduction to Rambo Amadeus wasn't Balkan Boy. It wasn't in looking this up. I've known about him since, I want to say, maybe 2009 or 2010. There's a Serbian Romani group called Kal that does kind of updated traditional Romani music that are brilliant. They're, they're great musicians. He was on their album, their self-titled album. That's when I first came across him. He was still kind of rapping at that time, but he wasn't rapping like the Beastie Boys. He didn't sound like that. And, you know, I've known a lot of people that have rapped for a very short amount of time. I want to say for like a year and a half, I rapped. I was super duper garbage. And I'll tell the story of that one day. So I'm trying, I'm trying to just, you know, test out different things with the podcast and test out different content. So like this week, I'm not just going to be putting out clips from the podcast in shorter form, like, oh, just this subject or that subject. I might do that as well, but I'm also going to add in a personal story related to this. So if that story ever crosses with something that we're talking about, namely my attempts to rap and what stopped them, I'll get into it. But for the time being, we'll hold off. What I will say is I've known a lot of other people over the years who have rapped as well. I want to say 100%. I've known a couple dudes that were more garbage than me, but that really takes talent and being garbage to be garbager than me. I'm, I'm trash, but I've known people a lot better than me. And a lot of those people, when they rap, they sound like their favorite rapper. And sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's not. If you really like Ghostface or if you really like uh, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, if you really like this dude, that dude, if you really like Little Wayne, if you really like Hove, if you really like Nas, you might try to imitate them. 
And sometimes, I mean, I've even known someone that sounded like somebody unintentionally, but they just happened to be from the same place. They're both from East Oakland, so he just sounded like he was from East Oakland. That's how he rapped. I'll say for Rambo Amadeus, this was probably done more so out of adoration for the Beastie Boys. So this first album that had these hip-hop influences was called Hosimo Busue, which was a satirical reference to some local political happenings in Montenegro, but we'll discuss those shortly. He didn't just do hip-hop. He also performed other styles as well. He would do, like, traditional songs. So there's a very traditional, like, getting drunk song called Chase No Mim, which means, like, fucking, like, breaking glasses. So in parts of Eastern Europe, when they do a shot, <laughs> throw that shit on the ground. That's what you do, and it's a song about getting fucked up. So he did a rendition of that. He would do other stuff as well, but the people that either were listening to it or the critics that were reviewing it or the people that were interviewing him, they were already familiar with that. But they weren't familiar with hip-hop. Figure a lot of people in America at that time weren't familiar with hip-hop either. This is still the late 80s. I believe this is like maybe 1987 or 1988. So they asked him, what's this new style called? And he could have just kept it real and said hip-hop, like, he could have said what it was, but he decided to be a smartass, and he called it Turbo Folk. He later said that this was a joke, and the joke was that there was no way that traditional folk music, which was very slow, like, very slow-tempoed music, there's no way that that could ever be Turbo. So that's why he said it. So yeah, it's a joke. He made a joke. So the way I look at this type of humor, his motivations, with my own analysis, I would say Rambo Amadeus was a hipster. I myself am not a hipster. I have never been a hipster. Never wanted to be one. I don't even think they exist anymore. So, but as I've stated in this episode before, I'm from San Francisco. My neighborhood is called Bernal Heights. It definitely got gentrified, but not by hipsters at first. It was other people, mainly people that were working in tech, that gentrified the neighborhood. The neighborhood that's like a block or five blocks or... Depending on who you ask, I'm already in the neighborhood. It's called the Mission District. The Mission District got super overrun by hipsters. I got to see that up close. I got to see that every day, the trickle in and then the flood and then the floodgates breaking. And then all of a sudden, all the people I'm used to seeing, all the things that I'm familiar with, they don't exist anymore. But there's hipsters everywhere. Like this colonization of the Mission, I saw it firsthand. And as we're going to talk about hipsters for a second, I'll say... A few things kind of stick out at first. Many, but certainly not all, but many come from affluent backgrounds like Rambo Amadeus. A lot of hipsters generally speaking, and this is all general, because there's going to be somebody that used to be a hipster and maybe still is one somehow that may take some kind of offense at this and say, well, I wasn't that type of hipster. I don't give a fuck what type of hipster you were. This is a general <laughs> statement, and it is what it is. And motherfucker, this is my podcast, so I'll talk about hipsters how I feel like. So I will say... Generally, there's an eclectic set of tastes, particularly when it comes to music. This is double particular. If the music is not already popular, it seems kind of innovative, or it stretches boundaries, quote unquote. There's definitely, or was, a hipster sense of style, and I wouldn't say that Rambo falls into this type of style at that time. He doesn't do it outright, but kind of in the spirit of what he's wearing, which is things that are non-traditional, boutique, unusual, eye-catching, uh, fucking wearing pants that just choke your balls into oblivion. He wasn't doing that. He was doing kind of his own similar type of vibe. And he was doing it to be noticeable. 
which to me seemed like the primary hipster motivation for not only the clothing choices, but for a lot of things. I will say most notably, or at least most notably to me with each passing wave of people that popped up, I noticed that a lot of them just took jokes way too damn far. And you can say, hey, Connor, stop being a wuss, stop being a bitch, learn to get over words. And I'll say, hey, I I agree with you, like I should get past that. But at the same time, we can all agree that some shit is just taking shit too far. And it almost seemed like a hipster specialty to do and say shit like this during this time. So I'll tell you a quick story about this. This is during the, the hipster golden era of San Francisco. So this is like 2011, 2012. And I was at a party with my then girlfriend. And this hipster dude just kind of looks at us. We're sitting down. It was somebody's bedroom. You know, we're in a party. It was kind of a fucky party, to be honest. Fools were doing lines. Fools were smoking chewy blunts. I was already, when I'm around that much cocaine, I get kind of nervous anyway. I don't do cocaine. I've never done cocaine. I grew up around motherfuckers smoking crack. No interest on my end. But people were doing that, so I was a little, I wasn't really feeling the vibe as it was. Me and my ex were sitting down up against the wall, up against a bed. And this little hipster dude just walks up says, hey, can I tell you guys something? I said, hey, what's up, dude? I'm like, sure. You guys are gonna die. And it's like, this motherfucker told me this shit, and this was his introduction. Like, this is how this dude says hi to people. I don't know what he expected us to say. But, oh, for real, dude? Whoa, that's great. Like, like I said, I'm not a hipster. I don't know what the fuck you say in a moment like that. I can tell you which I what I did, which was I flipped out on this dumb motherfucker. I told him, basically, you need to leave us alone. Go learn how to talk to people or some shit. And then maybe you can come back and you can kick it and we can talk. And he was like, man, I thought you guys were cool. We might be. Maybe we're not. I guarantee if you walk up and just, like, say you're going to die, like, you're telling me I'm going to die. The way I grew up, if somebody told me that, they weren't trying to be ironically funny. They mean, hey, Connor, I'm going to kill you. Take it very seriously. You're talking about my life here. I only get one life. I'm not really playing the shenanigans when it comes to my life. This is how this dude walked up to me. He tried to crack a joke. He thought it was going to be funny. He took the shit too far. I've also heard uh, a lot of quote-unquote ironic use of stuff like racial slurs, a lot of homophobia, but then also a lot of homoeroticism. And a lot of other quote-unquote shocking things that people say for some kind of attention or once again to be perceived as seeing as pushing some kind of boundary. So given all these facets, I'd definitely say that Rambo was a hipster. Long before all the atrocious hipster rappers that ended up coming out in the 2000s and later, he was the first. And his joke, Turbo Folk, like other hipster jokes, it ended up getting taken way too far, but... But unlike the hipsters, I found myself always irritated by, it wasn't taken too far by him. Others did so for. Do you remember Rambo Amadeus's first album title, Cosimo Gusle? As we talked about before, it references a really weird incident that happened in Montenegro around that time. So around this time, protesters started appearing on the streets, not just in Montenegro, but also in these other disputed places like Kosovo and Vojvodina. They were Serbian nationalists, they were seeking less corruption, more central power, and more ability to conduct commerce. Like, they wanted to be able to do business and make some money. In Montenegro, these protesters, they were actually heard chanting, 
Osimo Rusle, which in Serbo-Croat means we want the Russians. Namely, we want the Russians to invade. As there have been ties between the Serbian community and the Russian community, and seeing as Yugoslavia was hostile to the Soviet Union, this was taken as a provocation. And in the state outlets and in the state-controlled media, the protesters started to be criticized. When they started kind of feeling the heat from this criticism, somebody came forth and said, nah, nah, man, don't even worry about it. You guys got it all wrong. We weren't chanting Hosimo Rusle. We were chanting Hosimo Dusle, meaning we really want to hear some Dusle, which is like a, almost kind of like a lute instrument. We're really trying to hear that. Which begs the question, like, are fools really out here demanding to hear any instrument? Like, is there anything that just unites people in saying, fuck that, man, I need to hear that right now? I've never heard that. I don't know why they expected anybody to believe that, but this is the best they had to come up with. And, you know, considering what their motives were and why they were taking to the streets and what they were there in these places to do, it makes you wonder why they even bothered to come up with some bullshit like this in the first place. Oh yeah, did I forget to mention that in addition to these guys being Serbian nationalists and fiscally very liberal, they were also really, really, really big fans of Slobodan Milosevic. Yes, that Slobodan Milosevic, the one that promised to right those historical wrongs of 1974 and of the 40s and even 1389. And they hadn't just taken to the streets to tell people how awesome of a duty was. They were there on a mission. That mission was to create enough dissent disturbance, chaos that the provincial governments of Vojvodina and Kosovo, as well as the Republic of Montenegro, would fall. That they would destabilize local society enough that the local heads of government would be removed. Ultimately, they were successful. And the leaders of these quote-unquote protesters ended up becoming the regional leaders of these places, of Kosovo, of Vojvodina, and of Montenegro. These places all now were allied to Slobodan Milosevic. That meant he controlled the largest voting bloc in Yugoslavia. Remember, the autonomous provinces have the same voting powers as republics. That means Slobodan has control over Serbia, he has control over Montenegro, and he has control over the two autonomous provinces. He has a lot of votes and now he has a lot of say. This is something that set off a lot of suspicions, particularly from the Croatian and Slovenian socialist republics. In 1991, because of the ratcheting up of suspicion and tension in society, war would break out. So before we get into the conflict, which, as we all know, as many of us know at least, it was a particularly ugly, violent, and multifaceted conflict that killed over 100,000 people. It traumatized and crippled even more, and it upended the lives of multiple millions of people who fled. There were kids that, because I, I am of the age that, you know, I was... I think when this broke out, I was eight years old. I started meeting kids from the Balkans at this time that were refugees from this conflict. I, I know someone, not going to say her name, doubt she's listening. Shout out to her. She knows who she is. She's Bosnian. I went to middle school with her in seventh and eighth grade. And there was, a, I believe, an uh, Albanian guy as well that showed up in eighth grade. And kids were showing up fleeing this conflict. It was a very brutal, 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 awful conflict. But two things are worth noting before we talk about it. First, a lot of people look at the history between Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks and the other different groups in the area as some kind of like eternal blood feud or a conflict that just stretches back thousands of years and millennia. These guys have been at each other's throats forever. What are we going to do to stop it? 
all that shit. It's just not true. So during the period of Romantic Nationalism, during the time in history when people started reclaiming their past, quote-unquote, and embracing this mythological versions of themselves, there was a movement for equality in Habsburg, Croatia. That was led by Croatians. This was led by Croatians, and they looked at Serbs as their brothers. They embraced them, and when they wanted to uplift themselves, the understanding was they were uplifting the Serbs with them. Even the Ustasha, who were horrible, they, they committed genocide. They are the worst class of human being and criminal possible. They considered the Muslim Bosniaks to actually just be Islamified Croats. And because of that, they weren't subjected, Bosniaks weren't subjected to the types of horrors that Serbs, Jews, and Romani were. And actually, the, the people that were the leadership of the Ustasha a lot of times had respect for Islam as a faith, and they had respect for Bosniaks, period. So even then, even the people committing genocide still aren't 100% one way, hate everybody that's not me. That's just not the reality there. But that's, I, I don't say all that to say, oh, you know, all this stuff that people have said is a lie, because that's not true either. There has been a lot of violence, and there has been a lot of tension, particularly from the 1800s, and particularly post-World War II. Milosevic's moves, particularly overthrowing the governments of unfriendly entities, they had to cause paranoia. And how could they not? These other entities, particularly the Croatian Republic, the Slovenian Republic, the Bosnian Republic, they were unfriendly entities, and they were seeing what was happening to unfriendly entities. They were being overthrown. Second, before we talk about the conflict, it's worth noting that it wasn't just like Serbs lived in Serbia and Croats lived in Croatia. In Bosnia alone, there are really big communities of both, which at that time, Croats made up about 25% of the population and Serbs made up a third. Bosniaks themselves made up about 44 to 45% of the population. Everybody else was a minority. But there's, a, there's also different communities in different places. There's a big Serbian, uh, or there was at that time, there was a big Serbian community in Croatia that was longstanding. It had been around forever. As we said, huge one in, in Bosnia. There's a Croatian population in Serbia as well. In the big cities, pretty much everybody lives there. So there's big communities all around. There's a lot of mixed marriages. There's people everywhere. The settlement of past peoples and past Slavs and current peoples in past form didn't really have any kind of rhyme or reason that we would understand. We wouldn't. We like to draw a line and say everybody's on this side is this and everybody on that side is that. But particularly in the Balkans, it's just not like that. However, when Yugoslavia fell apart and these different entities went to war, they did it on a pretty local level in addition to the bigger levels as well. But the local level was militia versus militia and massacre for massacre in the areas where the communities mixed. This could be in villages or this could be in the bigger cities. People knew where to find their neighbor. They knew where to find the neighbor that was a Serb. They knew where to find the neighbor that was a Croat. They knew where the houses of worship were, the churches, the mosques. They knew where the banks were, the police stations, the radio stations. They knew where all these things were because they either lived in these neighborhoods themselves or they were from the area or they were just familiar with them. The fighting would turn ugly. But as we usually don't do on Brain Drain, I'm not going to get into the quote-unquote great men, great battles, statistics, who got killed more, who did this at this time. I'm not doing that any further than I already have. 
And as we know, that's not something I do on my show. However, with the onset of this conflict and with the effects that it had on the Republic of Serbia, we began to encounter the rise of Turbo Folk. In 1991, the first of what would be many Balkan Wars began. And for the next decade, with the exception of a rebellion that happened in what was then called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which is now called Northern Macedonia, all these other things would have a lot of things central to them and most central to them with Slobodan Milosevic. The first one to kick off was a very short 10-day war with Slovenia, which saw Slovenia end up getting its independence and go from being the Socialist Republic of Slovenia to just being the Republic of Slovenia, no more socialism. This war with Slovenia would bring condemnation, but it was the subsequent ventures, namely supporting rebellious Serb volunteer forces in Croatia and Bosnia, that would bring also condemnation, but also isolation and embargo. So Milosevic's goal and the goal of the people that supported him was the creation of Serb-only states in the parts of Croatia and Bosnia that bordered Serbia and had big Serb populations, had, as I said, long-standing populations. He wanted to depopulate these places of the perceived enemies, the perceived whatever people call other people that they're committing genocide against. He wanted to depopulate these areas of these people. This was carried out using not only just violence, but also the destruction of Catholic churches in Croatia, of mosques in Bosnia, large-scale targeting of civilians, both like just killing a bunch of people all at one time, committing massacres, but also by shelling indiscriminately, setting up snipers, just saying, shoot whoever. They tried to carry out this goal of creating a greater Serbia, of giving Serbia buffers between their quote-unquote enemies. This is Milosevic's goal. Strengthen Serbia, create a greater Serbia, more Serbian land, more Serbian prosperity. Sounds very similar to some other things that we've seen in the past with similar results. Also notable, but not specific to these wars, was the incredible amount of looting, stealing of personal property, as well as really horrific sexual violence, which, once again, we will not touch. We'll recognize, and we'll, t we'll talk about it in the context of it happening, but if you want to hear stories about what happened to women and sometimes men as well, I'm not going for it. I will say that human beings stop being looked at as human beings. You were either someone that was on my side, someone that was just like me or an ally, or you were an enemy. It didn't matter if you were an 8-year-old boy or an 80-year-old woman. If you weren't one of us, you were an enemy. And me, if I was of that mindset, removing you from existence, that's the best thing I can do for my cause. Many political and military figures during this time, be they Croat, Serb, or Bosniak, have been either accused or charged or convicted of war crimes during this time. But... I don't know if anybody during this conflict carried them out in such a systematic fashion as the Yugoslav People's Army and the different Serbian volunteer groups. They really stood out because of their brutality. And sadly, the members of these groups ended up replicating the crimes that were committed against their grandparents and older generation by the Nazis and the Ustasha. This includes locking people up in concentration camps, forcing women into sexual slavery, and just committing huge massacres like the Serebrincia massacre in 1995. 8,000 Bosniak Muslim men and boys, little boys. If you were of a certain age, you're looked at as a man. You might have been looked at anyway. You were a threat. 
there was a Dutch UN base that was supposed to be a safe haven. For these people, the Serb volunteer forces rolled up and over the next 11 days killed 8,000 people under the UN's eye. Because of these crimes directed by Milosevic and carried out by his lieutenants, Serbia found itself, as I've said, under very intense international scrutiny, including being deemed an international pariah in a criminal state. As happens a lot of times, particularly in the modern world, when the anger of the world, and trust me, it was justified for what Milosevic was carried out, when the anger of the world falls on somebody, he's nothing's going to happen to this person unless, like, rest in peace, like Prime Minister of Haiti, what happened to him, unless something like that happens. Anything you do short of that isn't going to affect his life very much. He might not be able to travel, but he'll be able to travel to the countries that hate you. So in this case, maybe, let's say, he'd be able, if Milosevic was around now, we put an embargo on him. Yeah, he can still go to Iran, or he can go to Syria, or he can go to Russia. He can go to these places. He can't go anywhere else. Otherwise, his life carries on pretty much the same. It's the common people that suffer under something like this. And aside from the shortages of just basic stuff like food, uh, there were, you know, the, the little luxuries that we have in life, the things that make life a little sweeter. That could be some liquor. That could be some weed or some other drugs that you like. That could be a new pair of pants. That could be a new pair of shoes, perfume, cologne but especially music, there began to be shortages of these things as well. And even though Serbia was pretty closed off to the world during this time because of the embargoes it was under, people still made their way out and then made their way back, smuggling these wanted commodities back into the country. There's a documentary about the criminal group the Pink Panthers, which is made up of people from the former Yugoslavia and started to kind of coalesce during this time. And this type of smuggling is more so documented in that documentary, so if you want to learn about it, you should check that out. But amongst these luxury goods that started to come into the country were CDs, CDs and tapes, particularly hip-hop CDs coming from America and electronic dance CDs coming from Europe, particularly the Netherlands and Germany. It wasn't called EDM just yet, but the idea was still kind of the same. The music was electronic and you were supposed to dance to it. House, freestyle, and high energy were the most popular derivatives of electronic dance music at this time. But as a kid, we all just kind of called them techno. Techno was its own derivative originally from Detroit, but for some reason the name stuck. I would listen to Wild 107 during this time. And Wild 107 played a combination of hip-hop and dance music, particularly Latin freestyle which was a lot of songs that had maybe different influences from Latin America. Maybe you might sample a salsa song or maybe some of the lyrics are in Spanish. That's what they were playing at the time. Some of the guys at the time on these house songs or on these freestyle songs were even rapping. Like if you remember CNC Music Factory on that song, Gonna Make You Sweat, dude was rapping. If you remember before Boogie Nights, Mark Wahlberg was Marky Mark and he was you know feeling the good vibrations. He was rapping on that. That was essentially like a rap house track. So that existed at that time. The level of MCing definitely didn't compare <laughs> to what what you heard on "Gonna Make You Sweat" or "Good Vibrations." It, it couldn't hold the candle, and I think the the people MCing on those songs would agree. It couldn't hold the candle to what Nas and Big Daddy Kane, Tupac, any of those guys that were active at that time. It wasn't even comparable. And I can say in Serbia around this time, the guys producing music, they enjoyed this type of music as well. Given the nationalism of the times, as well as what must have felt like persecution amongst the common people, 
it makes sense that the guys producing this new style of Serbian electronic music would incorporate traditional elements or familiar things from their culture and styles of music that were popular in Serbia prior to EDM. One of the first songs, if not the first song, to fully incorporate these outside influences was a song called Vestana Sad, or 200 per hour. Hearing this song for the first time in Serbia during these hard times, it had to be an experience. Let's imagine ourselves in that place. You're in a kafana, something like a cafe where alcohol and coffee is served, in the city of Belgrade in 1994. You're not quite 20, barely employed, and waiting for things to come back to normal before heading to university. You're not originally from Belgrade, but from the countryside, having left to find a better future in the big city. You've made some friends, guys just like you who are from your home province, living here, hoping to make something out of the experience. They join you this night in the cafana. There isn't a lot of money between you. Looking at the three holes in your belt you created past the original holes, you know you probably have the least to kick in. But you're not here to think about your belt or think about the hole in your white boot or anything else like that. You're here to have some fun. As the first bottle of Plum Slivovitz lands on your table, you stand up to make a toast. In Serbian, you say, in trying times like this, it's a blessing to have such great friends. Friends who know how terrible your life is and will get you drunk enough to forget about it. Your friends laugh and you down the first of many such toasts. The first bottle's empty, with another being empty not long after. You're loose and relaxed, with your laughter drawing a smile from an attractive woman with blue eyes and black hair sitting at another table. You see her boyfriend shortly afterwards, but you appreciate the moment all the same. One of your drunker friends demands somebody put some music on. A song called Kafana Yen Moya Istina, or The Kafana Is My Destiny, comes on, and you sing along, as does everybody else in the Kafana. Sure, you and everybody else has heard it a million times, but it makes you happy. And during times such as these, what's wrong with a little happiness? The song ends, and after a brief moment of quiet, another begins. You've heard this song before, too, but it's not Serbian. You think the group is called Unlimited 2, something like that. Yeah, it's okay, but it's not really your thing. But why are they playing the end of the song first? Wait, did the tape just skip? Are they playing a bootleg? Either way, despite the song not really being your thing, it becomes your thing under the influence of alcohol and in mixed company. Men and women, all equal to or just about at your level of drunkenness, begin to stand up and energetically dance. You begin wondering why the woman on the song hasn't started singing. Doesn't she usually start by now? Wait, someone just said something, but over the din of the crowd, it's hard to make out. Did he really just say something about folk? The song continues to play, but it's pretty clear it's not the song you thought it was. Sure, they took the instrumental from that song. Hold on. Did you just hear an accordion? Is someone playing an accordion on this song right now? You think of your grandfather back home, and how you used to love hearing him play the accordion all day, practicing, playing in church, everywhere you guys were, your grandfather and his accordion were right there with you. You loved hearing it, but you never thought someone would have the genius to incorporate it into something like this. Then you hear it again. Wait, wait, this guy's singing in Serbian. This is something from here. Something like this. How, how, how are you only hearing it now for the first time? 
you look around and everyone is momentarily astonished, just like you. They're just stuck. But just as you do, they get back to dancing jubilant. You can barely hear the lyrics, but it's something about cars. I mean, that's cool. You like cars. If you could, you'd jump in one right now and get the hell out of Belgrade. You hear the chorus, 200 kilometers per hour around the curve. After hearing the chorus a couple times, you're able to sing along. You like that, as do the rest of the kafana who sing along with you. A couple of people begin dancing in the center of the kafana during some kind of keyboard solo, going back to their friends right after. You don't need to hear anymore, but you do. Before you leave the kafana that night, the song is played almost ten times. When you leave, you leave a committed turbo-focused. When the song came out, enough people must have felt like our turbo-focused. Because this accidental genre became really popular, particularly in Serbia and in Bosnia. Who knows why the fake name that Rambo gave the fake genre stuck, but it did. Maybe it's as simple as Rambo Amadeus was the first person they ever heard making electronically flavored music. Or maybe it's when similar, though when you think about it, not similar at all type of music started being created in Serbia, they felt like they already had a name that applied to it, so they went with Turbo Folk. Regardless, as this song and a lot of songs like it began to take off in the early 90s, the genre became genuinely popular on a grassroots level. The songs reflected a lot of the day-to-day -day things that people are going through in their lives. Stuff like poverty, alcoholism, infidelity, love, revenge, general sadness, all these things that people experience in their day-to-day -day lives, they can hear them on record. And as it continued to grow in popularity, artists that were already established doing either traditional music or other types of music, a lot of times in the Balkans and Mediterranean, there's this kind of general... I guess Mediterranean music, crying music, kind of like wavery voice music. People were doing a lot of that. That ended up becoming part of Turbo Folk as these established artists became Turbo Folk artists themselves. So they said this is the new wave, and they jumped on. Most notably of these artists that crossed over or gained popularity through Turbo Folk is the singer Setsa. She became the most popular Turbo Folk singer during this time. Unfortunately, another common facet of life at that time started finding itself into the music. Hatred. The ethnic hatred that many people felt towards their neighbors during this time started appearing in songs, and in a lot of these songs, it spelled out pretty explicitly. The Queen of Turbo Folk herself, Setsa, she actually ended up marrying a leader of a Serb volunteer militia, a guy named Jelko Rajnatovic, better known as Arkon. We're going to have a future episode about Archon and Zetsa and everything that happened with him, their lives, and conflict, so we won't get into it for now. But what I will say and what's noteworthy about the man is that considering all these war crimes that were going on at the time, Archon still stands out. When many discuss the history of Turbo Folk's American mother hip-hop, they lament the co-opting of the form by corporate interests and big money. Many still also lament the co-opting of Rhythm and Blues, which was performed by entirely black artists. It was then co-opted, rebranded, given a white face, and turned into rock and roll. A lot of people still lament that co-opting as well. 
So since the inception of hip-hop, and what was seen as kind of the corporate co-opting of hip-hop from the late 90s onward, the majority of hip-hop artists have still remained black. But a lot of people do feel like the message that used to exist in hip-hop, that cataloged just the struggles people were going through, that preached black self-empowerment, not relying on anybody, we're going to do this ourselves, those are messages in hip-hop. Those are messages about standing up to unjust authority, and a lot of people feel like these things have been just stripped away in a more hedonistic, let's get high, let's get laid, let's get fucked up, let's kill people. They feel like that message has been slipped in as a replacement. You can say, though, from the time of the first hip-hop song being recorded, that the form was co-opted. Prior to this, hip-hop was done live. They were doing it in the park, they were doing it in the project buildings, they were doing it in... The yards between the project buildings, people were hooking up their illegal sources of power, hooking up to light posts. People had their speakers, their sound systems. This was done live, and the DJ was center to everything. He was responsible for keeping the music going. He was responsible for keeping the party going, keeping everybody dancing, keeping breaks going particularly. For people that don't know what I'm talking about when I say breaks, that is if you listen to old R&B, soul records, funk records from 60s, 70s, sometimes even the 80s as well. The little drum solo, that's the break. DJ Cool Herc, he was the first person to be able to synchronize the breaks between two records and elongate them and just play that solo endlessly for people to dance to. That was everybody's favorite part of the record was usually the break anyway. So he found the way to do that. That is hip-hop. It is people dancing to the break. That's why the people dancing to these breaks are called break dancers. People that still break are called break dancers. But that's, that's where it comes from for people that didn't know. The MC at this time was kind of almost like secondary. He was looked at in a secondary light. He was pretty much there, say a couple little fly rhymes, a couple little jokes, but really there, if an announcement or something needed to be made, you know, move your car, something like that, he was there to do that. But he was there to make the DJ look and sound cool. Then came the Sugar Hill Gang with their song, Rapper's Delight. First off, nobody in the Sugar Hill Gang was from Sugar Hill in Harlem, or not even from New York, period. Like, they weren't from the Bronx, they weren't from Queens, nowhere. Hip-hop was created in the Bronx. This is 1979. Hip-hop is created in 1973, give or take. At that time, it's still, it's going on elsewhere, but the way that people were rocking, they were rocking in the Bronx. They weren't from the Bronx. They weren't from New York, period. None of them were involved in the hip-hop scene at that time in the Bronx in any meaningful way, or really at all whatsoever. And they were actually put together as a group by a record executive named Sylvie Robinson. One of the guys in the group, he didn't even write his own raps. His name was Big Bang Hank. Rest in peace. And I'm not here to I'm not here to shit on the Sugar Hill Gang, but it's just the truth. This is the story. Big Bang Hank did not write his raps for this song. He took raps from one of the pioneers of hip hop, a guy named Grandmaster Kaz. When you hear Big Bang Hank saying the song, "I'm the Grandmaster," like he stole his shit. So that's the very first song. However, at the same time, Sylvia Robinson, she would also be responsible for putting out. The Message. The Message was a song by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five came out in 1982. It's the first song in hip-hop to document, detail what was going on in the hood, what was going on in the streets, how people were living. That song, The Message, it established a trend of social commentary that, you know, was very prevalent and still continues to exist to this day. It was a socially conscious track, but because it was backed by big money and backed by a corporation, it was able to reach a much larger audience than it would have had they been able to do it on their own. And to be honest, in those days, doing it on your own was almost impossible. 
you could do it. Like you had to have so much equipment. You had to have so many different just pieces to the puzzle. You had to have the money or the hustle to go get them. And if you didn't, you'd be rapping by yourself in your bathroom. So you can say as soon as hip hop was recorded, Rapper's Delight is the first formal hip hop recorded song. As soon as it was recorded and produced for retail sale, the moment that happened, it was co-opted. Perhaps it was ultimately the same for Turbo Folk as it was for hip hop. Perhaps the roots of hate music were already there because the people who listened to and performed this type of music felt that way. There might not have been any need for any kind of politician to get in their ear, any kind of militia commander or military figure. Nobody really needed to get in their ear and say, hey, stop talking about getting drunk and driving cars real fast and start talking about killing Bosnians. Perhaps even if there was some kind of outside influence and someone did drop this notion in somebody's mind, like, hey, make a song about this, it's possible that the person receiving the message wouldn't have looked at the politician or the commander or the ideologue as anything other than himself. Just a person that is a patriot, that embraced turbo folk, and has a message that's important to get out. Not opportunists, not war criminals, not worse, just patriots. And it would continue to increase in popularity throughout the 90s and 2000s, really through the bad times in Serbia. Ultimately, it would morph into what's called pop folk, which continues in Serbia as a musical genre. It's remembered by its critics as being really trashy, like very, very trashy, almost pornographic and vulgar, really glorifying the worst that society and humanity has to offer. Then again, many people liked it then, and they continue to do so now. For a lot of people, they couldn't care less who made the music or what the music's about. Any of that, none of that matters. There's a scene early in the movie Hotel Rwanda where Don Cheadle's character is based on a real person named Paul Sabinga. His driver in their car is listening to an anti-Tutsi song. And he's like, he's singing along with it. He's loud, you know, he's having a great time, despite the fact that he himself is a Tutsi. And if you can party to it, if you can dance to it, or just plain and simply, if it sounds good, that's good enough for most people. I'm going to say that also there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not advocating people listen to genocide music. But at the same time, there's a lot of really ignorant music that I'm a fan of. I still listen to a lot of ignorant shit that came out in the 90s. Particularly in the Bay Area, all the music that you heard was about screwing around, selling dope, killing people. That's it. Making money. Hustling. It was ignorant shit. I still listen to it to this day. I don't care. And, but I, I will say that I kind of have to be in a mood to listen to it nowadays, but that still happens from time to time. The non-ignorant stuff I listen to really isn't of any more substance either. I mean, it's a lot of like old love songs, reggae music, love songs. It's not a lot of get up and stand up. It's a lot of kickback, let's chill. And I really don't care because it sounds good. That's fine. It's in, it, it is important for messages of equality, liberation, of calling out injustice, it's very important for those messages to appear in music. I also feel like the music's got to be listenable. It's music. There's other forms and other ways to get these messages out, primarily in written form. But at the same time, it's good to have those messages. But if the messages don't sound good, not a lot of people are going to listen. And I'm probably not going to be one of them. As Turbo Folk morphed into and then became Pop Folk, a genre like many across the world including our own, like if you think about what's popular in America, it's traditional music that gets updated and turned into something else. It gets to be an updated version of kind of what we already listen to already. 
The same thing happened to Turbo Folk, but its legacy would live on in a different way. In the world of the internet in the late 90s and 2000s, a shift was forming as well. So as someone who grew up wanting a video game system or when I saw one of my friends had gotten a computer, I go over there and be on his computer all the time. As soon as I got those things myself, I was not trying to go outside. I was real deep on the AOL chat rooms across a lot of different subjects. I can say it's the first place I encountered racism for like humor's sake. A lot of times people would just use the N-word in what they thought was like a funny way, humorous way. Or especially during that time, people would find ways to work in like the word Jew or something related to Jewish people into the title of something. Or that would be a word that they would use to describe people. A lot of times these people were just doing this for attention or they were doing it to piss people off, which on me worked. I would get pissed when I'd see this shit. Uh, mostly because they thought it was funny and they didn't feel like there should be any kind of taboo against like what they call racial humor or telling race-based jokes or even they didn't think that there should be a taboo against using words such as the n-word also there were people who were just straight up ass racists some kids and adults who played like strategy games particularly like the world war ii based strategy games like axis and allies some of the people that played those games would purposely choose to be the nazis or be mussolini's italy or Axis Power be Japan, specifically to be antagonistic. In time, gaming, particularly gaming online, would become a vector for neo-Nazi recruitment, but by the time that really took off and started happening, more so around the time of Gamergate, so that's like the early 2010s, by the time neo-Nazis were effectively able to use gaming to recruit people into groups like Atomwaffen, those seeds had already been planted. So during this online world at that time where you encounter the casual quote-unquote ironic racism of some and the, and the outright open racism of other people, turbo folk and hate music that celebrated the murder of Muslims started to pop up. So in a post-9-11 U.S., and, and literally also post-9-11, there's been an increase in fear and an increase in hatred of Arabs, Muslims, people that look like Arabs and Muslims. Unfortunately, Sikhs get caught in the crossfire here sometimes where people target them because they think they're Muslim and they're not. It's, it's unfortunate, but this is, this is the world that we live in. And online, as this Islamophobia or this hate, just call it hatred, we can call it what it is, as this hatred of Muslims and people that seem to be Muslim becomes more prevalent post 9-11. Hate music, hate music, and turbo folk starts popping up in this online world because a lot of these songs celebrate the murder of Muslims. Some songs celebrating murder have even become memes, and the people in the music videos for these songs have become memes as well. There was one song in particular that has become a meme that's known under a lot of different names. It was originally known as Karadzic Legier Serbs in reference to Bosnian Serb politician Radovan Karadzic. This song has all the ethnic slurs and threats of violence that are common to music of the time. But the video for this song also includes a man who, who became a meme himself, convicted war criminal Novoslav Dajic, who plays accordion in this video. He's known as Dak Face, or the Dak Face Soldier, and the meme with his face was known as Remove Kebab, as in Remove a Muslim or Kill a Muslim. This is the essence of bigotry, taking a human being and everything that comes with that human being, the entirety of their humanity, and reducing them to something like an animal or a piece of food. This piece of food is no longer somebody's father. It's no longer somebody's mom, their kid, somebody's friend. It's a kebab. That person has become a kebab. 
and perhaps the overt hatred that's in the song, some people found it funny because it was so over the top and so hateful and so shocking and so not PC. Whoa, dude, that guy killed somebody. Whatever. Perhaps it just was what it was supposed to be from the start. An enticement to hate and an enticement to kill. In 2019, a man named Brenton Tarrant perpetuated the Christchurch shootings in Christchurch, New Zealand. Written on one of his rifles was two words, remove kebab. In his over 700-page manifesto, he described himself as a part-time kebab remover or a part-time kebab removalist and referenced Serbian history going back to the Battle of Kosovo as his motivations for what he was doing. Was he influenced to kill by this song and the anti-Muslim sentiment that he found in Serbian propaganda and turbo folk? Yeah, absolutely. Was it the only factor? No. And an analysis of him and other people like this who commit these mass shootings would make for a good episode for another time. But is his massacre and the massacre celebrated in turbo folk songs, as well as the massacres carried out by turbo folk listeners and artists, are they the legacy of this music? Absolutely. For whatever it is now, this is what it became. This is what it always will be remembered as. The absolute worst crimes were celebrated, and these songs were used to motivate people to commit even worse crimes afterwards. The power in that, that a song, a piece of music, can inspire somebody or compel somebody or at least stop somebody from protesting, killing other people, the power that exists in music, that power, it needs to be recognized. And the example that it provides us needs to be remembered. Thank you for listening this week, everybody. I really appreciate it. I have another episode in this Noteworthy series coming in a couple of weeks. But next week, I will be discussing San Francisco Chinatown Kingpin Raymond Shrimpboy Chow and why snitches don't always get stitches. Once again, this has been Brain Drain, and I am your host, Connor McCann. Thank you for listening.